0: From the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University, I'm JNP and this is Modern Media. Student journalists are some of the best informed
1: people on the campus. So if the student journalists are saying, we don't understand how the disciplinary process works, or we do not understand why the fees are what they are, or we do not understand what's going on with the construction in this building, then that's telling you something, that the best informed people on campus don't know the answers to it. So you haven't probably done an adequate job of explaining yourself
0: to your stakeholder. My guest today is Frank Lamonti. Frank Lamonti is the director of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. Previous to that, he was the executive director of the Student Press Law Center in Washington, D.C. Frank Lamonti, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'd like to start talking about some of the issues that face college newspapers, student newspapers, in this new era where colleges specifically are feeling a lot of pressure to project a kind of brand. And student journalists seem to get caught in, in the middle of something there where they're trying to report news um, largely about universities. And at the same time, the universities have a vested interest in maintaining a certain kind of image. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the student media really
1: has all the same issues and concerns that are facing the professional news media, but then a whole nother overlay of issues that are unique to students on top of those. In the professional news media and students are having to deal with declining advertising, declining circulation, declining readership, declining revenues. All those things are true all the way across the industry and students are not immune from that. And everybody's trying to figure out how do you build readership and audience at a time when there are so many online distractions and things competing for eyeballs. So, that's a baseline concern of of the industry as a whole. But then with students uh, dealing with that power differential that they have with their colleges, it can be very intimidating for a young person who uh, has to work in an environment where the the very sources that they cover, the, the, the officials that are the primary sources on their beat are also people who might have a lot of power over their futures, people who might be able to influence whether they get into graduate school or get good recommendations for a career or not. So it's an especially precarious place for a young person. It's a lot to navigate and you're absolutely right. We're we're in a time now where I think a lot of institutions perceive themselves as being in a fight for their lives when it comes to fundraising and recruiting the best students and retaining the best employees and all those things turn back to image. Uh, I do hear this phrase protecting the brand all the time in higher ed. I have to say it's a bit of a -a nails-on-a-chalkboard phrase for me. Uh, I I, I sort of reject the idea – that a higher education is a commodity it's not cornflakes it's not laundry detergent it's a public service and i i prefer to think of and i encourage the people who run the institutions to think of it more like a community than like a product and 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 i think they do think of it that way when when they really think about it that it is a community and and as a community you ought to be accountable and transparent to your stakeholders
0: that's so what do you think um some of the practices for administrations and, and faculty should be some of the best practices for dealing with a student media that at, this, at one time has to be kind of adversarial, and that's what they're trained to be in some ways, um, but also are members of, a, of, of this community that are in a particular kind of relationship to you, what are some of the practices that administrators and and faculty members and staff members can, can think about engaging in to help the student media and not be that kind of uh, roadblock to success?
1: We're living in a time of kind of a crisis of confidence in all of our institutions in this society, whether it is media, whether it is government, industry, clergy, everything, right? There are low, low levels of public uh, trust, some of it well-earned. And for that reason, I feel like higher ed has an opportunity as an opinion leader to really be a model of transparency and to show um, uh, how it's possible to run institutions in a more inclusive way, a more empowering way for the for the stakeholders. Um, and, and so for that reason, I, I sort of used this phrase before that I, I think All people in authority have an obligation to show their work just like they told you in high school geometry. It's not enough to just um, hand people an outcome of an already done decision and say, here it is, take it or leave it. You really have to show people that there was a legitimacy to the process that you followed. And At a a public uh, institution like a state university, then you're you're obligated to do that in some ways. There are public records laws and public meetings laws. But even at a private entity, there are certainly things that you can voluntarily uh, uh, make accessible to the public just to show – look, um, um, your voice was heard, it mattered, your, your input was valued and we reached this decision through a legitimate process that you should have trust in. And, and I think by, by showing your work, um, you do win public trust. So I guess my, my first piece of advice would be to always go into every interaction with media thinking about what is the most we can disclose and not what is the least we can disclose. I, I think a lot of folks – not limited to colleges but, but at, at, in all positions of authority, go into those interactions thinking, well, what does the law require me to give away? And that becomes the the amount that I'm going to give away. I'm going to give away only that much with the law – that the law requires and and not one – bit more. And there are many, many instances where uh, uh, the law gives you discretion to disclose or not to disclose. There aren't very many things that are, are, are made private under the law. And so lots of things about the decision-making process on college campuses can voluntarily be disclosed. And I, I would
0: encourage people to, to, to default to that, to that way. What are some of the things that college campuses, for instance, might be inclined to try to protect and keep confidential that really can be disclosed, but they might – but administrators or whoever might try to convince student journalists that, no, we cannot tell you this.
1: Well, there's a lot of fear, phobia and misinformation about FERPA and student confidentiality. So that's a big one right there. We hear the FERPA excuse a lot when student journalists or even professional journalists or frankly even – citizens are asking about the workings of educational institutions. For instance, I've seen FERPA cited uh, to obstruct access to statistics about how many times athletes get concussions in college athletic programs. And a statistic is not made confidential under FERPA. The law couldn't be clearer that once you take the students' names out of the records, uh, just a statistic does not not compromise anybody's federally protected privacy. And so uh, that would be one concrete suggestion would be look for ways that you can tell the story of what is going on at the institution through trends, patterns, and statistics, none of which compromises confidentiality. So it's true. Certainly, you can't give out the disciplinary records of people who've been, let's say, found responsible for sexual harassment. You can't hand out their individual disciplinary records. Those are confidential. But you can give out trends. You can say, look, we investigated 16 cases last year, and we found eight of them to be well-founded, and here's the range of penalties that we handed down, and that helps people, again, feel that there is a legitimacy to your operations and that um, complaints are taken seriously and that people who are wrongdoers receive meaningful punishment. All of those things go to contribute to a sense that it's a kind of a well-functioning and healthy civic ecosystem.
0: So it sounds like a version of if you're not doing anything wrong, there shouldn't be any much to hide here, right? And also, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about you know, on the other side, but some of good doing good investigative journalism right is to uh, be able to ferret out the the secrets right so there, there no may doubt. be some some bizarre uh, value to <laughs> secrecy in terms of educational value.
1: Oh, right? I've said that many times that working at a private college in a lot of ways is better preparation for the kind of journalism you're likely to do in the profession than uh, working at a public college because working at a public college, quite frankly, a lot of stuff is handed to you. You know, you can go into that board of trustees meeting or that board of regents meeting and you'll walk out the door with a notebook full of story ideas and an armload of documents and none of those things are made accessible to you at a private college, which means what? You have to develop sources and cultivate relationships. Relationships and occasionally be the beneficiary of a leak um, and all those things are going to serve you well when your beat is covering Microsoft Corporation or Boeing or somebody in the private sector because they're not going to hand you anything uh, and and you got to work for it so yeah absolutely it's uh, you know I, I don't encourage people to impose uh, needless adversity on their students no, but not, yeah. it's certainly you know we talk about grit a lot in education and we're certainly building a lot of grit um, when we make people dig and ferret out the truth
0: yeah. Well- So we were talking about best practices for administrations and things like that. What about the students themselves? What about student journalists and the kinds of things that they uh, should be doing when they find themselves in these potentially very awkward relationships with administrators or faculty or staff who do have another role with them? What are some practices that student journalists can start to employ that ease those relationships a little bit when they're they're acting as a journalist?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing I, I tell students is, Don't go into that interaction Hearing that you're going to "quote unquote" get in trouble, which I hear quite a lot. You know, I think people have had that drilled into them throughout their K through 12 lives that if you make somebody in authority bad, you will get in trouble and something bad will happen, and you don't want that. But the reality is that colleges are really not going to go throwing people out of school just for mm. doing aggressive journalism. I mean, you know, there's a limit to what they're going to do to you because, frankly, one day you're going to be a very valued alum and you're going to be an asset to them, and they're going to want to brag on your accomplishments. So they're really Really not going to uh, take 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 Draconian punitive action against you, um, and so while the interaction might be a little bit uncomfortable and it might put you in a little uh, awkward position, um, you'll survive it. You know, so I, I think people should go into those interactions with a sense of confidence that nothing terrible is going to happen to them. So that's, that's a big thing for starters, but also you know to to have. A bit of a consumer mentality when you're going in there. You're not doing something as an adversary of the school. You're not doing something um, because you intend to inflict harm on the school. You're doing something because you're trying to help them deliver services better. You know, and mm-hmm. I think that's a big thing to get across as a journalist. That you know, is it true that there are going to be times when I'm going to call public attention to something that is a shortcoming or a point of dissatisfaction with these services? Yes, that's definitely true. But just in the way that. We're We welcome that input when we hire an auditing firm and those auditors come in and they give you a thorough shakeout and they point out all your shortcomings and your failings and your weaknesses and you shake their hand and you say, thank you so much. You just saved me a bunch of money and you've you've saved me from making some mistakes. I think student journalism can be viewed in the same way. They're really giving kind of a customer service feedback to the people in authority and and, and if they find that students are voicing either dissatisfaction about something or or a lack of information about something, that's, that's a subject. To you that's telling you something as a person in authority that well maybe we're not explaining ourselves well or maybe we're not making decisions in an inclusive way so that students feel like their input is valued um, you know I, I think the last thing I would say is, is just you know as as a journalist you have to really own your mistakes and mm-hmm. and you have to you know when you screw up and you will screw up as a student you have to make them right as best you can and 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 that includes you know apologize publish a correction um, publish a you know a story that get straightens out any misperceptions you've left so all those things are, are just good examples of professionalism and, and ethical judgment and they'll serve you well in the profession but they'll also serve you well in, in building and maintaining those relationships because nobody has a right to expect you to be perfect, but they do have a right to expect you to at least clean up your
0: mistakes. And that's kind of the educational mission, right? This is you, you, you write a paper, right? You you get feedback. Hopefully you do the next one better and you fix it or you have a draft, right? And, and actually when you were talking about the student voices being heard through the paper, through the stories they tell... You know, it strikes me one way a university or any organization could look at this is, like, we have ongoing uh, feedback about how, the job we're doing. Uh, this is, in some ways, the best research material we could we could generate.
1: Absolutely, right? I mean, the, the student journalists are really they're, – they're some of the best informed people on the campus. So if the student journalists are saying, we don't understand how the disciplinary process works or we don't understand why the fees are what they are or we don't understand um, what's going on with the construction in this building, then that's t- telling you something, that the best informed people on campus don't know the answers to it. So you haven't probably done an adequate job of explaining yourself to your stakeholders. Um, I know that Almost every college in America has got a program about civic engagement and they claim to be gung-ho about civic engagement. Now, a lot of them are but a lot of them treat civic engagement on the cheap. They, they, they will do civic engagement by encouraging people to go volunteer in the homeless shelter soup kitchen or go volunteer do a blood drive or a canned food drive and, and that's great. I'm happy to have that. I, I think that's a wonderful piece of the civic engagement uh, whole but it's not the whole. The whole is to teach people how to engage with policymakers in order to make change. And and student journalism is really the best vehicle to do that because you cannot engage at the policy level and get things done unless you're proceeding from a a point of being well-informed, right? And Mm -hmm. and, and that student media vehicle, that TV show, that that radio show, that newspaper is the way – it's the window into the civic world for people. It's the way that they find out, oh, there's a bill in the legislature that might affect your rights or there's a proposal in front of the trustees that might affect how much college costs. And so uh, uh, that that vehicle, a well-supported um, student news organization, is a civic asset to the community that is a campus.
0: And it seems like it might also be a civic asset generally. I mean, I think um, you've talked before about the decline in newsrooms, right? Of paid reporters and how student journalists are actually starting to fill a role that they maybe didn't once serve. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean it it really used to be the case not that many years ago that we could count on that every major higher ed institution would be covered by some beat reporter from an Indianapolis star-sized newspaper and so that if something was going wrong on the campus or people had some concern or some problem that it would come to widespread public attention. Um, and, and, And in some ways those professional news organizations were backstopping the student media. Well that backstop is gone. You know, it's very rare that you find somebody who has the time to spend getting to know the sources on a college campus and getting to know the news. Um, very often, if the students don't make the public aware of something in that campus community, no one else will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that and that goes for the entire community as well. You know, the, the college town. Um, um, Oftentimes the the biggest and the best staffed outlet in the entire community is the student media organization. And so um, um, it it has become in a lot of ways that the analogy has been used before to a teaching hospital, that teaching hospitals Mm -hmm. provide that critical medical care that the community depends on, uh, that that 24-hour ER service um, um, to to address the needs of the indigent, people who would otherwise not have access to medical care. In that same way, student media really is stepping up and and becoming that frontline information Information provider on which the entire community relies, frankly, sometimes without their knowing. you know, People will see a news story online and they'll have no idea that that was written by a college student, but if, if, uh, if student media doesn't fill that void, then we really can't count on the profession to do it anymore because newsroom jobs are, are, are in drastic, drastic decline and there's just no prospect in the near term that that decline is going to turn around.
0: Mm. And so given that decline and the, and the prospects, which seem a little bleak, How do we convince students that doing journalism in in college is a worthwhile endeavor? I mean, what's the the payout for them?
1: Sure. I mean, while there will not ever be the number of traditional newspaper newsroom jobs that their parents or their grandparents might have been able to look forward to, are there jobs that tap into the skill set that you uniquely learn and master by working in that student newsroom environment? Absolutely there are. I mean I came from 10 years of running a nonprofit organization and I can tell you the most valuable person in our entire organization, the one indispensable person that we could not do without was the person who ran our website and posted the news. Uh, I, could, I could leave. I could get run over by a bus and people would be sad for a very short while. But if the webmaster left, <laughs> we were out of business because that was the entire public face of the organization mm-hmm. and so the ability to create content for the web is a very translatable skill to a lot of different professions. And those soft skills, those intangible skills of teamwork, communication, leadership, critical thinking, those are all the skills that employers say they most want to see in college graduates. You, you would think that it's computer programming, right? Yeah. You, you would think, oh, oh, well, everybody needs coding skills. And that's wonderful. And, and that it is a that is a highly rated skill. But it's not the most highly rated skill. The most highly rated skill is the ability to analyze and explain information. And so that is the essence of studying journalism. And I think that skill will serve you well, whatever professional environment you find yourself in.
0: I want to switch gears a little bit here and talk about your current position uh, at the Breckner Center at the University of Florida. You're doing a lot of um, research there. Can you talk a little bit about some of the research you're doing?
1: Yeah, it's just a wonderful luxury after having um, been in nonprofit land for 10 years and working at kind of breakneck pace to be a uh, problem solver that I get the luxury of being able to sit back and think for a little bit and to work on some of the problems that uh, afflict the public's access to information. And that was sort of the charge that I got from our dean, Diane McFarland, was to identify what were those pain points that journalists around the country were experiencing? What were the things that were afflicting people working in the news business um, that got between them and their information. And uh, what, what could we do to try to help address those? am um, short of going to court. I am a lawyer, but our, our charge is not to take cases to court. Our charge is really to kind of build the, the intellectual firepower so as to be able to convince policymakers to improve the public's right of access. So with that charge in mind, we've thrown some law student research and some grad student research, some projects like um, the very first one was um, looking at what are the rights of employees? in both the public sector and in the private sector to speak to the news media when their supervisors tell them no. And it turns out surprisingly that when employees in both the public and the private sector have brought legal challenges saying that they were forbidden from speaking to the media, they've been highly successful in winning those. I think counter to what a lot of people have been told, I think a lot of people have the impression that when you go into a workplace that the employer owns your time and that uh, if you uh, say something approved by the employer that you're exposing yourself to being fired. But the reality is that the First Amendment is quite powerful in that setting and that blanket gag orders on government employees have been disfavored for many, many years and, and do not withstand constitutional scrutiny. In the private sector, there is a statute, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is enforced by the uh, National Labor Relations Board. And the uh, uh, Fair Labor Standards Act has been uh, interpreted to uh, include within it – a right of free expression, and in particular, a right to speak to the news media. So a a private workplace that's governed by the NLRB um, that uh, uh, tells all of its employees either you're forbidden from talking to the media or you're required to only say positive, favorable things about us to the news media or positive, favorable things on social media is going too far and it's overreaching. And so that's one of the papers that we're getting ready to publish um, is on exactly that, trying to sort of alert people that workers may have more rights than they think they have.
0: And so and, and these lawsuits are brought by those workers rather than, say, the news media themselves who are being denied access to uh, these people the, the words that these people want to say, these things, right? So And these that's are
1: the, been the more typical pattern, but that's an aspect of the research we're working on is to try to draw a roadmap for journalists and news organizations to say is it possible for you to establish that you have the status to initiate that legal challenge? Mm-hmm. And I think that it is actually because there is an analogy in the setting of gag orders in trials mm-hmm. when judges impose gag orders on all of the participants in, in particular a criminal trial which is not unusual, right, that in a high profile case a judge will say every single person involved with this, jurors, parties, lawyers, everybody is forbidden from talking to the media and when news organizations have brought that challenge under the first First Amendment. They've been highly, highly successful. Um, a, a blanket gag order that says do not speak to the media at all is very unlikely to withstand First Amendment challenge. So because there's that roadmap for journalists to kind of stand in the shoes of the speaker and to say, mm-hmm. well, the speaker is not in a position to assert this right. So I will assert this right on their behalf. Journalists have been successful in doing that. So I think by analogy, they could stand in the shoes of the workers because we know that workers are very unlikely to sue their own bosses to say, I- I'm so interested in giving an. a Interviewed in the news media, that I'm getting a lawyer and taking it to court, and so in the absence of workers being able to effectively assert that right, we think that journalists can step in and do it for them.
0: So it sounds like what you're doing at the Breckner Center is a lot of um, almost. I, I hesitate to use the term think tank, but it's a lot of research that generates. You're looking at a lot of a sure. lot of case law, right? A lot of a um, lot of precedent, right? exactly. To yeah. see what are the patterns that we're seeing and how can we best advise people or or provide information to to pursue certain avenues is
1: exactly what okay. we're trying to do is both identify where people have legal rights that perhaps they weren't aware of mm-hmm. and, and, and draw them a map for how to protect those rights, but then also identify the places where the law is deficient, I'll identify places where people ought to have protection or ought to have access and are not receiving that now. And, and just just to briefly to uh, get into the latter a little bit, we have a sub project within Breckner Center that we're calling Data Deserts. Hmm. Um, uh, you've heard of food deserts, right, where people don't have access to fresh produce uh, because grocery stores uh, won't locate in certain, communities, um, data deserts are uh, uh, things that the government – Ought to be collecting and reporting on, but are not things that you would assume, right? That uh, everybody ought to be curious about and ought to be gathering uh, reliable statistics about, but are not. You know, for example, the the federal government requires uh, every year that there be a, what's called a uniform crime report, so that every police agency in America has got to turn in their data to the FBI, and the public can look at it, and that way you can make some meaningful comparisons, and you can say, oh, well, is you know Omaha, Nebraska, a safer city than Phoenix, Arizona, or whatever? You can make those comparisons by looking at the data. Um, But there there is a surprising dearth of data on things like – For example, use of force by police officers. That's not something that the FBI requires be included in that report today. And so you can go to some communities and they're quite transparent about it. You can find out, yes, we had 20 complaints of excessive force and here's how we dealt with them. And in other communities, you've got to drag it out of them using open records laws and there's not really a lot of standardization in how those records are kept. So you can't be sure you're comparing apples and apples. So that's one of the many areas that we're finding um, where where there's not – another one is – instances of sexual harassment in K-12 schools, um, which, which is a, 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 a gr- increasingly being recognized as a problem um, that this is being reported in the K-12 education world. But there is no requirement to gather and publish that data. And so in the absence of that, you've really got to go school by school and it can be a very painstaking process to use FOIA to get that data out of them. And then even when you do, you're not absolutely sure that you're you're getting standardized and reliable data.
0: That combined with Hollowing out of newsrooms, right, seems to be creating kind of a perfect storm of, of of misinformation or lack of information. Where it's already hard, it's harder to get it, and then we don't have the people to do the digging. You're exactly
1: right, and and that is, you know, if you wanted to create sort of a petri dish in which fake news could grow, you couldn't think of a better way to do it than that, mm-hmm. where you have fewer learned intermediaries to bring you reliable information, and you're sort of awash in this doubtfully reliable junk data, right? And 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 when people learn to distrust what's in front of their eyes and they don't have somebody who's kind of a trusted truth seeker who can sort it out for them, that's exactly when stuff like fake news is going to proliferate. I mean I I, I am maybe an optimist on this, maybe an idealist on this, but I do believe that Good information, generally speaking, crowds out bad information. But when you have a vacuum, bad information will always occupy it, right? And, and so bad information will uh, uh, thrive in an environment where we're deprived of, of reliable data. And I do think that that's, that's a, you know, a self-interest argument for government – even at a time of great image consciousness is, yes, is it painful sometimes to publicize the fact that you have police brutality? Is it painful sometimes to publicize that you have sexual harassment? Yes, it is painful to do that but if we want to restore and renew people's trust in institutions Part of that is owning up to when things go wrong, right? Owning up to when things go wrong, being transparent about it so that they feel like, oh, the information that you are publishing is reliable enough that I will not be tempted by this gossip, rumor and speculation that I'm being bombarded with on social media.
0: Hmm. And I think that's a great place to sort of stop. I want to thank you for – a, all the work you're doing uh, at the Breckner Center okay. and that you did with the Student Press Law Center, um, and that I think you continue to do on some level. Um, and just thank you for sitting down and talking to us. This has been wonderfully enlightening.
1: Well, it's a super impressive campus full of just
0: very, very uh, inquisitive and, and thoughtful students and it's been a delight to visit with them. And that'll do it for another installment of Modern Media. My guest today was Frank Lamonti, the director of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. Modern Media is a production of the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media at DePauw University. For more information and to listen to previous installments, visit our website at www.modernmediapodcast.org. You can also subscribe to Modern Media through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media.